Hi, welcome to another Real Food Traveler podcast. This is Courtney Drake McDonough. I'm the publisher and managing editor of realfoodtraveler.com, a culinary travel digital magazine. As you know, we, we usually talk about food and travel in conjunction with each other. Today, we're focusing more on travel, though, and we're talking cranes. In fact, the great crane migration, which happens every spring in Nebraska. And we recently published an article on the site about the crane migration. Um, but I wanted to talk to somebody who who works with, with the cranes and this whole migration all the time and really find out a little bit more about this natural phenomenon. So we're talking today to Andrew Caven, who's the Director of Conservation Research at the Crane Trust in Wood River, Nebraska. So, Andrew, thank you for joining us today and talking about the cranes. Sure. Now, at the time of this recording, it's mid-February. Actually, it's Valentine's Day, so happy Valentine's Day. Um, (laughs) And so I know we're right on the cusp of everything really happening with the migration. So let, let's talk first a little bit about the Crane Trust and, you know, as, as Director of Conservation Research, what does that mean you do there and what does the organization do? Well, um, our organization was formed as a result of a, a legal settlement over water in the Platte River um, in 1978. Um, the National Wildlife Federation and the state of Nebraska were suing Basin Electric um, for a dam that had been approved already and was nearly completely constructed um, because it was going to impact whooping crane habitat in the Central Platte River Valley. And, and the Endangered Species Act was new in 1972. And um, one of the first species they, they tackled with a large focus in defining critical habitat was the whooping crane. And it designated the Central Platte River Valley where we are today as critical habitat, meaning it was um, very important um, or essential to the continuance of that species. Um, and that was, was how we, we got money to form. So, so basically, instead of holding up the dam's construction, the three parties came to an agreement to, to pay to have habitat restoration and protection work done in the Central Platte River Valley to offset the costs of the water taken out of the North Platte uh, and, and eventually the main stem Platte River. And so it's our mission is to protect um, the Big Bend Reach of the Platte River uh, for whooping cranes, sandhill cranes, and migratory bird life. Um, and it faces a lot of issues. So um, there's, there's a lot of historic change on the Platte River. It used to be over a mile wide, especially at flood stage, and pulse up to 30,000 cubic feet per second. Um, and now it doesn't doesn't really do that anymore. And it's about, you know, a wide channel now is about 400 meters, but much of it is much less than that. We've seen 90% declines in, in parts of the channel. And um, it used to be all wet meadow, which has also uh, been largely turned to agriculture. So as an organization, we work uh, hard to... Um, to uh, advocate for um, keeping flows in the Platte River from from a political standpoint, but we, we work even harder to do um, uh, land restoration uh, work. That we we do some some clearing of invasive species in the river valley, uh, disc up the river, which is is 
complicated and I can explain later, but we actually drive a tractor through the river when the water gets low and vegetation creeps into it so we can keep the channels wide. And we, um, we restore uh, prairie and wet meadow uh, from crop field uh, with willing uh, collaborators, uh, private landowners and such. So um, that is what we do as an organization. Uh, so we, we started out really focused on, on the whooping crane, but it happens that um, the great one of the greatest migrations left in the world, the sandhill crane migration, also uh, goes right here through central Nebraska. In fact, a lot of other birds do. A large percentage of the greater white-fronted geese uh, population of the northern uh, pintail, uh, which is a species of duck, um, of the uh, buff-breasted sandpipers, uh, Longville dowichers, all these interesting water birds, a large number of them come through the central Platte River Valley uh, on their spring and or fall migration. So um, that is sort of what we do. Wow. And so definitely a bird lover's paradise there, it sounds like. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it is. So you, you touched on this, but what kinds of cranes migrate to the area? Because I, I always, in years past, really just heard about the sandhill cranes and I was surprised with the article that we published to find out that there are multiple species of cranes that come through. Well, well, there are, but they're actually, the other ones are sort of, um, aside from the whooping crane, which, which the Platte River is one of the main stopover habitats for the whooping crane. The other species of crane that come through, uh, like the common crane, are sort of uh, vagrant, as we call them. They're sort of, uh, uh, you know, the sandhill cranes actually migrate all the way over to Siberia, and every once in a while, a, a, a Eurasian species of crane will come back with them. And that's happened, uh, you know, uh, most commonly with common cranes, but, but can happen with a couple other species as well. But regularly in Nebraska, you find sandhill cranes and whooping cranes. And there's also leucistic cranes, uh, which are a uh, weird... Um, sort of a color morph of a, a sandhill crane. But well, we have lots of different birds. And I, I don't know much about birds, so why why would there be such a variety? I mean, is it, you know, to take from that old saying, birds of a feather flock together? I mean, is is that why multiple kinds all come through together? Um. You know, it's, it's, that's a great phrase. Um, <laughs> you know what it is? It's all about wetlands. Um, mm -hmm. So the Great Plains, we've lost. Like, the Platte River is just one example. Um, but, but the basin wetlands heading south of the Platte River, south of the Platte River, as you said, south across Kansas and uh, Oklahoma and Texas, they have a different kind of wetland. They have riverine systems like we do, but most of the quality stopover habitat in those states are, are basin wetlands which are, are basically large, flat bowls that, that there's a clay layer in the soil and water pools there in these low depressions, and it creates wide marshy habitats, which is the favorite um, habitat of, of both species of cranes for, um, you know, roosting, and uh, they also both forage there. But whooping cranes in particular need those uh, wetlands for foraging as well. These species of cranes uh, migrate through the, the central flyway and they need to find this wetland habitat, but um, uh, over 60% of the basin wetlands in, say, Oklahoma, for example, have been uh, lost, and of those that are left, like not over 90% are in some 
uh, denuded form. So we really have lost a lot of prairie and wetland habitat throughout the Great Plains, which has made um, uh, migration challenging for a number of these waterbird species. So it, it may um, uh, lead to actually more of them concentrating in fewer spots. But, but a whole great host of, of shorebirds, ducks, um, cranes, and uh, 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 herons, egrets, and allies, all, all of them, uh, a lot of them in the Great Plains come through the Central Platte River Valley and use those basin wetlands on their migration. So um, we, we sort of don't exist in a bubble, but in a large complex of, of wetlands that span the Great Plains from Texas up to northern Canada. Just a little bit of an aside, because what something you said made me wonder about something I see here in Colorado. We used to see the Canada geese come through at a certain time, and then the majority of them would leave. But we're noticing more and more of them are staying. And we don't have a lot of marshlands, but we have a lot of lake areas. So is do you think that's why, because of increasing shortages of these areas that they would normally have gone to? Well, that is very interesting, and I'm not really an expert on, on uh, Canada geese. But what's interesting about Canada geese is, is uh, how adaptive they've been. One thing I can say is they've changed their ranges um, as, as we've had warmer winters. They're sort of an ice pusher, you know. If, if there's open water, they'll, they'll sort of be there. And they're also very adaptable, so they can eat a lot of just grass in a park. So. Mm-hmm. You know, they have definitely extended their winter range north, and we've seen more and more residents, and that's probably endemic to their own behavioral characteristics. But but one thing we have seen is them moving further north, and, and I think the limited limiting of wetland habitat in the Great Plains is sort of affecting a, a host of species, and, and um, I can't really say exactly how that's affecting uh, Canada geese, but as a uh, the waterbird sort of guild, um, <laughs> I know that there is a uh, a lot of them have had they, a lot of waterbirds select for larger complexes and diverse wetland complexes that have several uh, you know several wetlands near each other um, uh, diversity in landscape characteristics and stuff and those really quality um, natural sites are fewer and further between than they were. Um, even a couple decades ago, but you compare it to 100 years ago, and it's it's drastic. Hmm. Well, thank you for indulging that question, and I'd imagine that because we've got readers all over the country and really all over the world, that maybe some of these listeners have witnessed similar things, you know, and have kind of wondered why the birds are hanging around so much. Uh, more than they used to, so that that explains it. Back to central Nebraska and and the crane migration. How long have these water birds been doing this this path and coming through Nebraska. That is very interesting. Um, they there's fossils of, of sandhill light cranes um, that go back about 10 million years in Nebraska. However, the, the Platte River wasn't even in its current course at that point, so it's it's sort of been a long progression. Cranes have been migrating through the Great Plains and stopping here for a very very long time. The number of of sandhill cranes was at about 500,000 in 1982, um, and has continued to climb since then, but we don't have perfect estimates. Um, but if you go back, uh, you know, to the turn of the century, it was uh, maybe 20% or less of that uh, value. So so they've really increased in number 
over the last century. They're one of the few birds that have really done well in the modified landscape because they can eat corn. Now, they can't live off corn alone, and that's sort of a misconception, but they've, they've done well in the modified landscape, and so their numbers are larger than they were historically. Um, so when you ask how long has this migration been going on, well, it's been going on a very long time, but, but the species of crane and the character of the migration has certainly changed over time. The migration, uh, Nebraska's rivers have... Um, really settled into their present course even in the last you know 30,000 years and, and since humans have changed uh, the Platte River has been shifting courses really pretty variably but going throughout southern Nebraska and was probably always a, a valuable stopover area for uh, sandhill cranes and there's probably been wetland and extensive wetland around you know the Platte River Basin in some form or another for, for millions of years in, in southern Nebraska. I say about two million years. I tell people that there's been a migration that is somewhat similar to what's going on now, but, but certainly in the last 20,000 years, but even in the last 100 years, it's changed a lot in character. You know, it's gotten bigger um, in terms of number of birds, and actually the habitat's gotten smaller. Wow. What What is it that keeps them returning to the same area year after year? I mean, is it is it that it's innate or that they, how do they know? How do they know to keep that's coming big, back? That's a big question. Um, you know, they could, I, th- I think if, you know, instead of growing corn, um, if someone turned the faucet off on the Platte River and there was no water and people quit growing corn, I think they would adapt and find a new staging area. Um uh, it wouldn't be good for the population, but but historically, if you go way back to when the plat was just uh, you know in the 1860s pre-development, this really uh, wide, extensive uh, braided river um, with a lot of prairie and, and uh, wet meadow and marsh around it, they would have had quite a feast here as well at that point, um, and it's sort of called a staging area. So usually in the first first portion of the migration on the way north or, or on the first portion of the migration on the way south, uh, water birds and, and cranes uh, in particular do this, this staging behavior and sandhill cranes, you know, stage for a very long time in Nebraska in the spring. They don't do it in the fall in, in Nebraska, but whooping cranes will also stage uh, less conspicuously and for less long period of time, but they'll stage in, you know, Kuvira, National Wildlife Refuge and, and Salt Plains in the, in the Southern Plains, which is also National Wildlife Refuge in, in Southern Saskatchewan. So this, this behavior staging is sort of where you're on your way during migration and you take an extended stopover where you really build up uh, calories in a quality habitat. And, and, a, and it can also have a lot of uh, cultural significance for the birds like sandhill grants have a very a strong social hierarchy and they recognize um, their their uh, family members via via their vocalizations um, and they actually have a strict hierarchy where where you know older paired adults uh, have are higher in rank and they're they don't even breed till they're three or four years old and some of these unpaired sort of sub adults are sort of you know lower ranking you see them really get picked on everybody thinks oh all the cranes are dancing right but but some a lot of it's aggressive behavior you can see particularly these these uh you see birds getting getting uh 
kind of pushed off a good roost location or whatever. It's often one of these younger birds, you know, but there's a lot of cultural significance to the plat. So I established real quickly that they have a complex social organization hierarchy, but they also mate, find their mates. Often these three or four year old birds will find their, their mate. They'll pair bond on the, uh, in the central Platte river Valley on their way north. So not only is this an important place to stop on their way north and feed, it's also important to uh, the species for, for pair bonding. And uh, it's been documented that in the native wet meadows, they do certain pair bonding behaviors they don't commonly do in, in uh, agricultural fields. So so this, this habitat is very much a part of their their life cycle for sandhill cranes. I think I covered that. I don't know. I don't know what else to yeah. add there. No, that's very interesting. And do they mate for life? They generally do, but you know, they as, as they're about as monogamous as birds get. I would say, um, you know, and they actually both rear their um, their chicks. They both spend about equal time hmm. with their chicks, um, and they do mate for life. But sometimes they split up after they lose uh, have a. a an unsuccessful nesting season Mm -hmm. um and you know if one dies they will remate but um there's a lot of reports of if 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 one gets injured or attacked or killed by a predator say like an eagle the member of the pair who remains alive will often stay in close vicinity to you know it's it's dead mate for Mm -hmm. a while before it leaves so i mean they they could have strong pair bonds. It's pretty rare that eagles kill cranes, by the way, but but uh, we have seen it on the Platte River. But they have other pre- predators. I've watched coyotes hunt them and unsuccessfully most of the time, uh, for sure. They're quite strong birds. They can actually, their bill could go right through the, they'll aim right at the eyes of a coyote or a feral dog or a domestic dog going after them. Their beaks are quite sharp and they can definitely poke your eye out or, or injure a dog or a person, you know. Huh. Well, I, I was just about to say that it was very fitting then, inadvertently, that you and I were talking about this today on Valentine's Day because, you know, the, these birds pairing up in this area during this time and, and mating for life. But then you talked about coyotes and and smashing through the eye and that kind of harshed my romantic mellow. Really, <laughs> but they are, they are, they are really uh, lovebirds, I guess you could say. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> So talk about the time frame for their arrival and, and therefore when you recommend people come. That's another story which is kind of interesting. Um, it has advanced and become earlier in recent years. You're still really great time to come. It's the middle of March. Um, and into early April um, is uh, sort of the end of the migration. And increasingly, uh, mid-February, you can find significant numbers of cranes. There's um, I've done my first survey of the year, first aerial survey, and you know we have we have well over ten thousand here already. Mm. Um, so historically, you often saw the first arrivals in mid to late March. Uh, if you go back to the nineteen twenties, say um, today, you often see the first arrivals at the end of January or early February, and you have you know significant numbers by the end of February, which which didn't used to be the case. Um, so. Um, the migration has gotten earlier. Uh, you know, it's likely linked to a climate climate change, but you also have factors such as a, a, you know agricultural uh, waste grains, which which give them a food source they wouldn't otherwise have when it's really cold in the winter. So there's probably multiple factors contributing to that. You come in March to visit, and you're going to see cranes. Put it that way. Just March the whole month. 
That's, mm-hmm. that's what I tell people. Okay. They're like, well, I want to come at peak. And I'm like, well, I've seen peak from March, the peak of abundance over a half million. We've seen that from the, the first week of March to the first week of, of April. They're like March 8th or 5th, you know, somewhere around there to maybe April 3rd or 4th. You're, you're going to see a lot of cranes. Okay. What are some of the things that people are surprised by when they come to watch the migration? And I'm talking anything from how early they have to get up to the temperature and the noise, that that kind of stuff. All that is, you said it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's being, they are incredibly loud and their their vocalizations can carry across several kilometers. They have this historic modified trachea and communication and, and sound is clearly very important to them. Um, and, and, uh, you know, you have certain birds standing sentry all night, uh, you know, they kind of rotate. There's, it seems like some are sleeping, you know, resting and there's others awake at all times. And there's always one or two making an alarm call in the middle of the night. And so you see, um, they're never really quiet on their mm-hmm. roost. They're, they are very, very boisterous and loud. Um, and it only gets louder when the sun rises and they, wake up and start dancing around and picking mm-hmm. up sticks and throwing them in the air and and uh, fighting over good spots with each other and, and et cetera. So they're very loud. That surprises people. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be quite, quite cold. I tell people to bring a lot of layers because, you know, the whole march in like a lion out like a lamb sort of thing. Uh, it's very true in Nebraska. We can we could easily get down to minus five at the beginning of the month, and you know we could have snow at the end of the month too. But sometimes some some marches it's it's uh, already greening up at mm. the end of the month, and it's it it's uh, starting to feel pretty nice. It's very unpredictable weather. We're really in the center of the Great Plains, and you can have a front come from across the northern plains north of of Montana and through Saskatchewan there, push cold air right down through Nebraska. And you can also have warm air come up through the Southern Plains and the Southeast and, and really bring a nice warm front. And that's when the cranes like to, to, to migrate, you know, when you have some warm wind out of the South, they'll really take those, those thermals and fly with them heading North. So, hmm. so wh- why did they pick up sticks and throw them? You know, uh, a little bit of a display. I've often seen it before. Uh, a pair does some kind of pair bonding rituals, um, some bowing to each other, circle around, and it's it's uh, it could be a display of fitness to some degree. Hmm. Uh, there's there's uh, you know like look at how good I am with my bill. There's been some good writings about it. Tacha T A C H A. I never know how to say that name. Is a really good researcher who did a whole uh, monograph of sandhill crane behavior. That's that's from about 20 years ago, but covers all these different behaviors and, and people could find it and, and read it if you're really into cranes and, and you're coming and you want to learn something about their behavior before you get here. But you can there's there's some nice drawings online to different behaviors. You can watch behavior all day. That's how, you know, I, I give a lot of tours uh increasingly less but but especially when i was new here i've got too much research going on now but you know if, uh, fundraising for our conservation efforts if there's a big donor around i'm out giving a tour and such and so i've watched crane so much that i really get wrapped in the uh, drama between them they, they have a lot a lot going on socially mm-hmm. and that's sort of what keeps int- keeps it interesting watching the cranes over time that's so cool well that that leads perfectly into my next question then tell me why you personally find it so amazing to to be doing what you do and and the whole crane migration experience well i just love ecology so i love understanding what what habitats species need 
Um, and, and cranes in Nebraska fascinated me. I moved up here from New Mexico. I was with, uh, I'm from South Dakota, but the previous five years I was in New Mexico and I've been here on my fifth year here. And I was down in New Mexico, um, uh, doing some really interesting work, but I saw an opportunity up here to work in Nebraska and look at uh, the relationship between um, landscape level habitat features and uh, sandhill cranes, along with a lot of other interesting things. We also have a bison herd and uh, we do a lot of um, different management techniques to improve our prairies and, and restoration, we use a lot of fire, um, controlled burning and such. So it's a really interesting job. And, uh, you know, the cranes are a big part of it, but they are a, a part of it. We got a whole really interesting ecosystem that's very threatened and endangered. You know, less than 3% of the tall grass prairie in Nebraska is, is left untilled. And, you know, we're, we're protecting some very large tracts of lowland tall grass prairie and people come for the cranes, but they stay for, for, um, the diversity of things that uh, this river valley can offer. As a biologist and ecologist, you know, the cranes, I mean, it is one of the world's greatest migrations. I mean, in terms of vertebrates, it's easily one of the, uh, you know, three largest that still remain, you know, and there's a bat migration in Africa and a wildebeest migration in Africa and the sandhill cranes in North America. And, and really, those are the first three people mentioned, particularly the wildebeests and the cranes. You know, there's very few things this gargantuan and big and, and striking left um, and you know we, we hope we can preserve that for for future generations because you know hopefully it's not something you have to read about in a uh, in a book someday and it doesn't exist you know so that's that's exciting um, but there's there's so much to this ecosystem in terms of of you know the prairie diversity very very high you know our 6,000 acres here. We have over 500 species of vascular plants and we get, you know, nearly 300 bird species come through. The cranes are the star of the show though, the sandhill cranes in particular. And, and when a whooping crane shows up, they are, but they're pretty stealthy. We had, we can have, you know, 40 or 50 whooping cranes stop in a regular migration. Um, the most we've had is over a hundred. I think it was about 130 stop in one migrate spring migration, which is wild. I'm considering there's only 500 left. So, mm. you know, a huge proportion of those birds stopped uh, on the Platte River in a recent migration. We're here technically to protect habitat for the whooping cranes, but sandhill cranes create this amazing spectacle in March uh, and are the star of the show. And that's what brings people here. It gets them to invest in conservation and uh, uh, to keep the ecologists here like me. It's so cool to think that this is happening and, you know, so many of us around the country don't get to experience this unless we, we go to Nebraska and witness it and that there's this opportunity every year to do it is very, very cool. So um, if people want to know more about the migration and more about the Crane Trust, what's the best way for them to reach you? You know, our website has a lot of great content. And there's a number of staff on there. It's just cranetrust.org. Checking that out. Our, our visitor center has a ton of promotional materials as well, which we sort of have two offices. We have one, the resource office where I am, where, where people sort of do research and, and land management and such. And we have sort of a, a public face, um, which is our nature visitor center, which has a, a lot of really knowledgeable people uh, who, especially in March, are ready and very willing to uh, provide a ton of information if you stop in there. They always have their phones open as well and are easy to get a hold of. And a lot of general questions uh, the Nature and Visitor Center can, for a normal 
a, a normal question about cranes and the migration will give you a pretty good answer. And if you got some really weird questions, then, then they'll forward you on to us. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, taking a little bit of your Valentine's Day and grant writing time to talk to us for Real Food Traveler. I encourage all of our listeners to, to go to that article on our site and learn a little bit more from a visitor's perspective of what she experienced when she went, but definitely to, to reach out to Andrew and, and everyone mentioned and, uh, and go experience this very, very cool thing. If it's hopefully this year, and if not, there'll be other years, but we encourage people to go this year. So Andrew, thank you so much for, for your time today and for being our guest on the Real Food Traveler podcast. Oh, it was a great pleasure. You have you have two good of questions. You really uh, <laughs> really got me thinking. I, I really appreciate it, and I uh, look forward to listening to uh, more of your shows in the future. Well, thank you. Thank you. And if to our listeners, if you go and you get a chance to encounter Andrew, be sure you let him know that you heard about it on the Real Food Traveler podcast. That would be fun. Thank you, and happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to you <laughs> as well. <laughs>